If you've been listening to the Truest Fan Blueprints, you know that Phil and I want to see you, our listeners, succeed. And that's one of the reasons we've created a brand new program called the Truest Fan Roundtable. It's your way to take a test drive of our coaching and mentoring process, a process that will help you take your business and your life to new levels of success. And you can try it out for free. Just go to truestfancoaching.com forward slash free dash access and sign up. That's truestfancoaching.com forward slash free dash access. I hope to see you there. Leave things better than you found them is great advice. It's advice that today's guest, Azul Tarones, co-founder of Authors Who Lead, received as an Eagle Scout. And he's kept that advice in mind throughout his life in the way that he cares for his family, cares about the community around him, cares about his team and the clients that he serves as he coaches them through the book writing process. Azul also talks about how to get past that question of should I write a book and how to get started. It's a fascinating conversation. You'll be glad you listened. You're listening to the Truest Fan Podcast. And now, here's your host, Rob Brown. Welcome, welcome, everybody, to this latest episode of the Truest Fan Podcast. I am stoked today to have as my guest, Azul Tarones. And we just talked about how to say his name. And I was okay with it before. Um, I had to start thinking about actually recording it and make sure I got it right. So, so I think I, I think I did okay. Um, but um, the reason I'm really excited to introduce Azul is uh, Azul is really one of the instigators um, behind the whole Truest Fan idea. Um, Azul was my coach um, as we wrote, or I wrote, the Truest Fan book, Truest Fan Live, Love, and Lead with Purpose and Impact. So. I don't think um, I'd have the Truest Fan podcast if it wasn't uh, for Azul. Um, Azul is a co-founder of Authors Who Lead. Um, he helps leaders like you write books that uh, people love. And he also spent uh, over 25 years as a teacher, so a great uh, background. So Azul, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Rob. Such a pleasure. Yeah, well, it's, it's great to have you. Um, great to have you on board. So, um, to get started, I love to ask the question: What is your favorite baseball team? Because when we were um, brainstorming, or I was brainstorming, you were helping me brainstorm, whatever the right terminology is, to write the truest fan. The whole idea of being a truest fan to my favorite baseball team, the Cleveland Indians, now Guardians, was one of the guiding thoughts that you you kept kind of saying, Rob, don't let that go. Don't let that go. And I didn't. So do you have a favorite uh, baseball team? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. When I was growing up, I played baseball like a lot of people did. Never really excelled in it, but I used to live in the Bay Area, roughly. I lived in Santa Cruz, California, and it's when Ricky Henderson was just all the craze and watching him steal bases and that. So 
I think if I had to pick, it might have been the A's because that was where I remember my childhood fondness for for the game and going to games and seeing them. Also, you know, going to Candlestick and watching the Giants play. So I think it would have to be between those two teams that would be my favorite. Um, and it brings back so many memories when I even think about a team, think about the connection to team. And so when you were talking, and it, it sort of just fell out of your mouth when you started describing your devotion to Cleveland, and you you said the word truest fan. I remember thinking, wow, wait, what did you just say? That that just blew my mind. And I think it was it came from that devotion that 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 was brought up through that. So yeah, that that's the team that has that sort of feeling for me. Yeah, well, great. And it's and it's funny sometimes when you think about that, you go back to a player who then reminds you of the team. And so that idea of being a fan and really um, remembering and kind of attaching memory to it um, is, is more sometimes than just uh, just the team. And, and of course, Ricky Henderson is one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. Yeah. And I it, it, it inspired me to just, I think, love the game from a different perspective. Loving it through a player was a really interesting because it wasn't in my city. It wasn't like somewhere I grew up where there was, it was too small of a town where I grew up. So it already seemed bigger than life because you're going to the big city to see a game versus I could watch Ricky Henderson and feel like I was participating in some way. Yeah. Cause I, it's hard to think of a player who was like more engaged in the game all the time because he was just always, um, always on the move. Um, and I guess you would yeah. be that way when you steal that many bases. <laughs> Right. It was like he, you get to watch him bat, but then you get to watch him for four different, you know, batters or six batters, whatever, to get across the bases. So you get to, you were really, he was the entire show in some way, like the entire uh, game was centered around his action. And that's, that was unique, I think, at the time and, and um, was really inspirational to watch a player kind of dominate a game that can particularly only take place at the home plate. Yeah, very, very few players can take over a game that way. And, um, and he certainly yeah. her certainly did it. But anyway, we could talk about baseball, um, especially <laughs> Cleveland baseball the whole time. And that's not the purpose of the podcast, but I think it's great. I think you're the first Bay Area baseball fan I've had on the podcast. So that uh, gives you something else to be noteworthy for. Um, but my, my favorite question to ask, to kind of dig in deep to this idea of being um, a truest fan is to get you to think back to advice you've been given through your life that's really stuck with you and, and maybe been a guiding principle. Is there is there one piece or a couple of pieces of advice that really hang with you? That's such a great question. And when you pose it, even in preparing for this, I, I, I really struggled with the one piece advice, but I think, you know, I was very fortunate in that I grew up being in scouting. And for me, being an Eagle Scout had been a really wonderful moment for me, starting from Cub Scouts all the way through. And I think some of the best advice might have come from my Scoutmaster in some regards. And it was more about leaving things better than the way you found them. And at the time, I thought it was about campgrounds and campfires and picking up litter and checking the streams for things that were left behind by fishermen and making sure you left it better than you found it. And that was sort of 
how he approached it. But what I realized after I grew up was that it was a beautiful metaphor for life. Whether you're spending time with somebody or you're working in a place or anything, you could apply that principle, like leave it better than you, you found it. Um, and so, so that's made a lasting impression on me over the years. And I watch myself picking up after people and doing things because that's what kind of we were expected as a kid. You're kind of like, I didn't do this. Why do I have to do it? But I think it's, there's something about the devotion to in service to others that was ingrained in me at a very young age. So I think that advice, even though it was such a subtle piece of advice has really impacted me the way I see the world. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's, I think that's, um, one of those great nuggets that, when you say it, you know, it comes across as being something that is, should be simple, right? Just leave it right. better than you found it. Um, but in application, you have to take action. You have to remember to do it because you can take it for granted and say, do I have to leave it better than I found it this time? Does, 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 that, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Because, well, and if you apply it to non-tangible things, if you remove it from litter and you put it to people's hearts or something like very delicate and intangible, if you walk into a place and someone's demeanor is negative or harsh, it's hard to f put that principle in action. Like, how do I leave this situation better than I found it? I came to it and it was really negative and heavy. Do I want to add to this or how can I leave this person who just had a negative experience maybe with the person ahead of me in line, for example, how can I leave their day better than I found them when I encountered them? That that becomes infinitely harder because I'm an introvert. So like that takes work and I tend to like, well, I could just feel bad for them and move on, but what could I do here? So for me in, in those instances, that's where it becomes challenging in business as well. Um, there are times when you are delivered or get received something that isn't ideal and your goal is, well, how can I make this better than when it sort of it is now um, for the, the client or for even the team members that are trying to, you know, fix or improve a situation. So that's when that advice becomes infinitely more challenging to apply. And I think it's like the golden rule in, in the regards, you know, which is the other part of that. It, 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 to love in hard times, right? to give when it isn't the easiest thing to do. Because everyone's threshold for that experience is different. You know, I, I think both the golden rule and your um, uh, leaving things um, better than you found them are also examples of examples. Because if you're if you do it and you do it right, other people see it. You don't do it that way because you expect other people to see it and compliment you for it and say, oh, wow, look at Azul. He is the, you know, he's leaving things better than he found them. But they're thinking, hey, I just, I just learned something from him because he, he did something that I noticed to that person in line in front of me or to a teammate. Um, so I think, I think that's another extension of why that kind of lesson is so valuable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think that's when your moral compass is tested um, to treat people the way you want to be treated in all circumstances, not just the ones that are easy. The same thing goes with leaving something better than you arrived. Because if you arrive to a Airbnb and it, 
it's a mess because the guest before left something undone. You could complain <laughs> or you could at least notify somebody, but you could also clean it up or pick it up or do something. And if you f- see it as a joy and as your role on this planet, you're never feel negative about it. You feel like, oh, this is my job. Great opportunity to do something I really want to do, which is serve. Um, and in our society today and social media and likes and downloads and clicks and all that stuff, you f- sometimes feel like you're supposed to be noticed for those things. And and the truth is I feel more inclined to do when I'm not noticed because I think I'm just oriented around the service part more than the gratification that comes from being noticed. But that took a while. I mean, that, that starting at a young age, having that demeanor helped because I didn't have, we didn't, you know, we didn't grow up with the internet. So it wasn't like anyone was noticing us anyways. Um, you know, very few. So yeah, I think it's different to, to apply it now. I think in, in many circumstances. Yeah. That, that, um, humbleness of doing it again, not because you're trying to get something for you're not like the uh the guy at the u.s open yesterday that had his barber come and cut his hair you know on court it was it was, it was yeah. let's get just, noticed <laughs> just a little bit absurd yeah yeah exactly that's a great example of that <laughs> but i but i also was thinking about um you know many years ago i worked with a fella who was uh well into his um, 70s. He was the, um, uh, not, he was not, what's it, what is it when you're no longer the chairman, chairman emeritus of, of the board mm. of the company that I worked for. It was yeah. a company um, that was um, named after um, his grandfather. And I was wow. walking to a meeting with him and he's this proud old gentleman. And I watched him bend down and pick up you know, a piece of paper, small piece of paper on the floor that had fallen out of somebody's notebook and place it in the trash can. And I said, that's awesome. I said, you, you really care about this place. You noticed the little things. And he goes, he goes, yeah. He goes, my mom taught that to me a long time ago that you just pick up after yourself and you keep things looking nice. And it's a, it's a habit that I've never lost. And, mm-hmm. you know, that little simple example was maybe more like the, the going camping with the Boy Scouts and that he was leaving the, the camp or office nicer. But it was also an example to everybody around him that, hey, uh, this guy who had just been uh, a great business leader, a great leader in the community was willing to do the small things. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things you told me when we were kind of dissecting what you might write about was that. You said everyone deserves a truest fan. And I thought that that might have been some of the best advice that I think I've heard in recent times. Like that was a nugget that stuck with me because no matter who you are, and you talked about rooting for the underdog and how important that is, but in that essence is that we're all underdogs, right? And everyone deserves that truest fan moment to feel supported despite how you're performing, despite the record as it stands, you know? And I think that's, that comes from a deeper place from you as, as, as a leader. And, you know, I, you recognize that in other people, ironically, before I was a teacher, I worked in television and I worked for Dick Clark for a while. And, um, one of my first times working for him, ironically, was at the American Music Awards. He had just started it a few years before because uh, he was the founder of that. And 
my my friend and I, we worked there together and you know, they have these big parties afterwards and you know, we stayed because we were part of the, the, the production team and you know, we were, we were probably a little bit younger than we should have been drinking, uh, to be honest, um, carrying out bottles of wine. They told us you could take this because we, we can't keep this. We can't send it back if you want to take it. We're like, okay, we're stuffing them in my, our shirts and our <laughs> pants, our polyester suits as we're leaving. And we're walking down the stairs of the Shrine Auditorium. And one of us, I don't remember if it was myself or my friend, dropped a bottle of wine at almost nearly the top of the this beautiful grand staircase and watching it go thump, 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 thinking please don't break please don't break and, and you know it's pretty empty no one's really there but it's there's a few people milling around and it goes down the bottom and, and finally this gentleman stops it with his foot and looks up at us and i thought oh we're in trouble one we shouldn't probably be taking this much wine and two you know we're dropping it and we walked down the bottom and it, it was dick clark who stopped the bottle of wine <laughs> and you know that you know we're just you know i don't even you know, he doesn't know who we are we're just working for the company and he reached down to pick it up and handed it to us and he goes thank you for doing such a great job today i really appreciate it didn't say anything about the bottle of wine or that we had our arms full of wine but just was gracious and wanted to pick up the wine and right. hand it to us because our hands were full and i thought what an that that to me what showed his leadership. I didn't I didn't know much more about his personal life, but I watched and observed how he treated us. Very low level people on the totem pole. And that always struck me about that didn't take any effort or money on his part, but it took a lot of humility. And I about that stuck with me. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things about um, that whole idea of everybody needs a truest fan is that, you know, sometimes you're at this low, embarrassing moment when maybe you don't even want to be noticed, but it's, it's okay to tap someone on the shoulder and say, Hey, it's okay. You know, I, I care about you. I get where you are and I appreciate you. Um, yeah. because it's harder to do it then than it is, you know, when you're out on the field of play and you've just hit a home run, you know, everybody's your truest fan at, exactly. um, at that point. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the beauty. I mean, to me, on a, when you were writing this book, how you parlayed this notion of your devotion to Cleveland to being the cheerleader, as you called it at the time, for other people and how important that was to you that that you should stand in that gap for somebody and how that made you feel important. That fandhood, fandom was where you felt most comfortable and being people's supporter. That's that's a gift. Not all of us have that in us. And as you know, that's for Cleveland fans, that's really true because there's <laughs> true for every fan group that doesn't have that, you know, limelight every year. You have to be committed. And that's true for humans, right? We're not always hitting, you know, it out of the park. And to be a fan at those times is really what your book's about. This really beautiful allegory about what it means, the deeper faith behind this principle of being a truest fan. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, but, but I obviously feel that way very much about you and the way that I see you going about your business and supporting um, the authors that you serve um, through authors who, um, who lead. But before we dig into that a little bit more, um, you know, one of, one of the things that um, I always like to remember about Truest Fan is uh, what I call lesson number four, that smiles and kind words go a long way. I, 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 I shouldn't have a favorite lesson, but I, I think that's it because that's also 
a way to leave things better than you found them. Because when you are in, in, a, in, a, in a space or a place where you can have interaction with somebody and, and all you have inside of you is a little bit of a smile or a, or a hello, that can make a big difference too. And, and you may not see how that difference plays out, but um, it, it, it sticks. Um, I know it has for me in situations like that, and I bet it has for you. Yeah, no, for sure. Being a, being a principal can be a thinkless job. It, it can be a job where you're thrusted into the limelight or into public eye, but a lot of times you're doing work that involves lots of different parts of the operations. You know, It doesn't take much to, to smile and talk to the custodial staff about their day. How's your daughter? How's college going? You know, but so many people walk by them and don't notice people, don't notice because their role doesn't seem as significant as their role that they have. I think smiling is like the most powerful tool I think humans can have. Um, and the things that make me smile is, are simple. They're not, they're not the big milestones in life, actually. It's when I remember, oh my gosh, I'm alive today. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> like, so many people didn't wake up today. Like, incredible. And when people say, gosh, you're smile, you're just smiling. You must be really happy. Something good happened. I'm like, actually, yeah, this is the best day of my life. People are like, what do you mean the best day of your life? I'm like, this is the only day I have. I don't know if I'll get another. And yesterday's gone. So like, this is the best day of my life. That's a beautiful, infectious feeling when you see someone right. living like that. So I think, I think that the blessing of a smile is really yeah. great. It's, it's, it's sort of the idea of waking up happy, right? If you wake up happy with a smile on your face, you just, there's a much better chance of you having the kind of day that you want to have. And as you go about your business, you're going to probably let that infect other people, you know, which I think is really a powerful thing. Yeah. A hundred percent. I agree with that so much. I'm glad that's one of your favorite chapters for sure. Are you ready to discover your true purpose? live with impact and build an ever greater legacy? Then you need to make time for what truly matters most. Go to truestfan.com slash challenge to begin the free Truest Fan seven day quick start. Yeah, so, um, so tell us a little bit about writing a book. Um, I get lots of questions about it from my clients and from other um, others that I run into that talk about the different things that I've done or I've helped my clients with. And, and writing a book is, is just one of, you know, probably one of those top five things that's, that, that people say they want to do, but they just don't have it in them. Yeah. You know, writing a book is unlike any other creative endeavor I've experienced, even from people who are creators regularly, for example, people that I've worked for, like Pat Flynn of the Smart Passive Income blog and podcast has created millions of words to, to his podcasts and his blog. And I've helped YouTubers who have huge followings, who can create content that blows your mind. But then when it comes to writing a book, feel like they're frozen, like they just don't know what to do next. And I think the biggest mistake that people make is thinking that if I get the outline, I'll be able to write the book. And logically, that makes sense. 
I'm not saying don't have an outline, but what I've noticed and observed when I coach people is that the outline becomes so intimidating because they think, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to write all this? Um, how do I know if this is the right thing? Just putting an outline together. And the truth is you don't know if that's the thing. Outlines don't necessarily solve that problem. So that's why people get stuck. So one of the things I try to encourage authors to do is just discover yourself through your writing. Think on the page, not in your head. A lot of people want to think the book perfectly and spit it out so it looks perfect. I'm like, well, that's not how books are born. Um, They're birthed and then they get reshaped and reformed. And books really are created during the rewriting process, as you discovered more than it is on the writing process. The writing process is the initial, as I call it, the lump of clay on the potter's wheel. Without the lump of clay, it's hard to try to shape a vase ideally in your mind and then just take clay and like throw it on the potter's wheel to shape into a vase. You really just need a lump of clay first. And most people don't like the idea of their messy, ugly draft because they want it to look good. They don't want to wrestle with it. And that's a lot of it training from schools, like what I used to do for kids before I knew better, which was make them work really hard at becoming editors before I let them be writers, before I let them discover what they have to say in the world. Um, And tuning into their most unique aspect. Your unique aspect was the fact how devoted you were to Cleveland. Your genius is in your service, service to being a fan. That's amazing. You do it in lots of areas for your church community, for the people you serve in your local community. That's one of the things you shine, but it's so easy to focus on what you know and what you're good at versus who you are in your core. And I think so people think that a book's about your knowledge. It is, but it's your knowledge through the lens of how you see the world. And so that's why it becomes really complicated. It's not hard. It's one word after the other, but, but your brain gets so focused on this being quote good that you almost can't produce anything. So that's, that's one of the challenges with book writing. And I, I try to help people let go of the attachment to everything so that they can just discover first. And that's, that's really a, one of the hardest parts about writing a book is finding out what's your message. And I have to admit through the process that we went through, that was the part that probably um, scared me the most because you just had to convince me that, Hey, there was something out there. I mean, I had this rough idea of what I wanted to do, even the type of book that I wanted um, to write. Um, but it just took the confidence of knowing that if you um, really spend time um, dreaming and thinking about what's really on your heart and what you're trying to get after, and then just kind of um, start writing, um, not not feeling like um, you've got to write the book in order. Um, um, I don't know I've I've talked with people before yeah. who've, who've got great outlines. So I've got. I, I know I'd be great at writing a book because I have an outline. And I say, well, why do you only have an outline? And they go, right. well, I haven't gotten time for it yet. And um, and maybe that's part of it, but I'm sure you see that all the time. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I wish I could say that I was immune to <laughs> that thing. I, I wish I could. But whenever I tell myself a story about why I'm not writing, then I know I'm, I'm lying to myself. Whenever there's a story, either I am writing or I'm not writing. Everything else in between is a story. <laughs> um, and if you don't get attached to the words, you realize I can write bad words, whatever in your mind is bad, like not good. Not I don't want people to see this words. But, but words, words are a tool. I, I say books aren't 
really aren't words. They're messages that are contained in words. Because the truest fan is something you live out. The truest fan is something that's a principle. It's a deeper understanding. That's a message. That's a really worthy message. The words are what you're trying to wrestle with so that people can understand it when they're not with you. Because if you observe you, Rob Brown, and watch your life, you'll see that come to life. But to paint it into a picture where other people can interpret it. That's why words are a tool. But the message is already in itself a valuable asset. And I, I try to convince people of this, like your message is more important than the words that will hold it. And they're like, no, no, if I get these words, I get this outline, it'll be great. I'm like, I I like the Ted X sort of topic of like ideas worth spreading. Books are ideas worth spreading too. They're just not in this on the stage. They're in words on the page. But if it's not worthy of spreading as an idea, what adding words to it won't make it better. <laughs> it's something <laughs> yeah. that takes time to wrestle with. And as you were talking about that, I was also thinking about the fact of how tricky words can be. You know, you think about that relative to writing a book, writing 20, 30, 40,000 words. But I, I run into plenty of people who were just trying to help them with a simple two or three sentence elevator pitch or, or value statement. And, yeah. you know, it takes, um, if you don't allow yourself to just, you know, pull from your heart and what you really believe about what you're doing, and you try to edit before you write, those three yeah. sentences could be just as hard as the 30,000 um, words in the book. 100% agree with you on that. That's exactly right. And I think what you said there is like, when you start to edit, when you're creating, that's when the problem begins. And most of us were trained to be editors, not writers. And what I mean by that is, in school, you're given an assignment by a teacher, by a professor, here's the deadline, here's the rubric or the sort of the plan, here's what the grading system is. Your job is to write for that purpose. Like, how do I edit this to meet the need of the teacher, to make this pass the class, get the grade I want, etc. Most of us didn't do much writing that wasn't from assigned from somebody else. So we, we end up editing before we start even writing because that's our, that's our default. And that's actually really difficult when you're trying to be a creator. A creator is creating new ideas, new relevant topics. Uh, that takes, that's a creative process. That process is not the same as editing. Editing is like judging, deciding if it's good or bad, getting rid of it. Two different halves of your brain. So if you think you're going to edit and write at the same time, you're going to end up taking one a lot longer and two, probably editing out some really good stuff because you're judging yourself too soon. <laughs> oh, this isn't good. They're not going to like that. Like all that stuff you take out. Oh, that's a good story, but no, that's embarrassing or whatever it is. The vulnerability factor starts to go out the window and you write a very technical how-to book, which is not necessary anymore. We don't need very many how-tos. I know as a kid, I wanted to learn ventriloquism. I rode my bike six miles to the public library to check out a book on ventriloquism because there was no other way to learn unless you knew a ventriloquist. Now I could click on my phone, right? So I, we don't need as much how-to because we're drowning in information now. Now we need a reason to, to do it, pay attention, to trust. What is this and why do I care? More of a book these days that are impactful are those kinds of conversations. And that doesn't take knowledge alone. It takes your own unique perspective. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. I, I really think those are really important words for folks to reflect on 
um, who are, who are thinking about writing a book. Cause my, my advice to most people that I run into say, because they know that I've written a couple of books, well, should I write a book? I said, well, yes, <laughs> there's, there's <laughs> yes. And, and, and even if it's just something that you write because you want to create some sort of, you know, memoir to share, you know, your, your, your story with future generations of your family. And, um, and, I, and then, to, and then to start writing it, um, not worrying about who's going to read it next. Like when you're mm-hmm. writing that book, you know, don't, don't write like, you know, three, 30,000 people are looking over your shoulder, reading right behind you and want to correct, you know, every yeah. word or question, every idea, just write to write, write for yourself. And then that, that, um, that message really pours out. Yeah. And keep, if, if it's hard writing for yourself, keep one person in mind. I think you did a good job of having an ideal reader in mind. Um, that helps because you're only talking to that one person. Like it's a letter to them. Like this is for you. I'm writing to you. And when someone, when you read a book, you feel like they get you and they, they, they really understand you. You, you feel listen, you feel heard. You feel like this is my person. And then they start following you, wanting to know more about you, your programs, your business. And at the very least, their life shifted or changed or perspective because most people overstuff books with information and they realize too late that they could have been two or three books. But the truth is if you can get someone to just look in a different direction, they were paying attention to, they just might transform their entire life. If you ask them to get up, turn around, dance, touch the floor, like you're asking too much of them. They're not going to do it. One, you're competing with every other thing in their life, but two, who are you to tell them to turn 180 degrees? Maybe just offer them another way of looking at the world. And that can be really powerful. And like you said, maybe you're writing a book to just leave a legacy or to speak your piece. Had one woman, beautiful, lovely woman that I worked with on her book. She's very devout in her Christian faith. She's had emigrated from Southeast Asia with her family and her was brought up by a very religious family in, in India one of the challenges of her faith was she had some really challenging times with the people she should trust in her faith and some uh, issues around, you know, incest. That was really difficult for her to write because she didn't want to smear the faith that she had believed still believes into this day. But she wanted her daughter to understand why things were so hard, why she fled her home and left her behind until she could get settled in the U S that was, it was a challenging thing to write, but she wrote it because she wanted her family to understand her. And it was, her mission wasn't to sell a million books was just to be able to share her truth with her family and be able to say it. She wrote it under her pen name. She still wanted to protect her family's background, but she ended up passing away. And that was some difficult times, but her daughter reached out and said, you know, I just want you to let you know, that this is one of the biggest goals in her life. And the last few years as she wrote this book, we became closer. And I just want you to know how impactful it was. And to me, that's what a powerful purpose for a book. It doesn't always have to be to sell or build businesses. It could be simply for that purpose. And it's probably one of the books that will be on my heart forever just because of that powerful impact it had on her and her family. Yeah, it doesn't take a lot of people. It's kind of like being a truest fan for everybody, um, you're going to have, um, that impact, maybe, um, small in terms of the scope of people, 
because uh, we want to count numbers. We want to count likes or followers or whatever, but um, deep in terms of somebody saying, you know, I read those words and that, that really made a difference to me. It reminded me of something that I've long since forgotten or something I wish um, I had learned years ago. And, um, and that's just, that's just an amazing thing. And I think writing a book is one of the few ways that you can accomplish that. Yeah. One of my friends, Hal Elrod, who wrote the book, The Miracle Morning, um, was talking to a group of people about his book journey. And it was a self-published book. And people, you know, it's one of the most successful self-published books on Amazon has ever had. Um, but the, the, the truth about it was, is it was kind of quiet and didn't have much traction for almost five years. He just was persistent about the belief and the messages of this Miracle Morning principles because it really changed his life. And I think that too many authors give up too soon on their message because they think, well, no one's buying it. And they don't give it its attention. And I tell authors, writing a book is maybe like an event, but once it's birthed into the world, it's 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 alive. You, you don't just celebrate your child's birthday and then that's it. You have to nurture them the all the time and in between and afterwards. And that's kind of what books are. You can't just give up on it because the first three months, you, know, you only sold so many, so now you're moving on. A book has a life. If you nurture it, it will continue to grow, especially if the message matters to you. So I encourage anyone who has a book who's, eh, it's not doing as well. well, that might just take some tweaking, some improving. More than likely, the author just got tired of their own message. <laughs> and you can't. You have to care more than, than the reader because if you don't care, how do you expect the readers to? Yeah, that's, that's some other great advice. Because um, I know in my uh, book writing journey, there have been some a lot of highs. And I would, I am um, forever grateful that I took the time to do that and had your help. Um, but there have also been some times since then where I haven't been able to give it the attention it deserved. It was something that was beyond my control, but it was still there. And it's just, it just, it gnaws at me. Um, every day, because I just, I really believe that that whole message is being so important. So uh, again, yeah. something that a, a book allows you to do is to to share what you really believe and feel in a way that you can proactively change the world, even if it's just one person at a time. Yeah. So remember, we are, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was thinking, remember, it's new for the person who hasn't heard of you every time you talk. <laughs> it's just not new <laughs> to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, again, it's, it's funny because something starts to get a little bit of age on it. We go, oh, everybody saw that, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> but if you've, you know, if you've ever, you know, paid close attention to some of like your favorite um, weekly emails that you get from, you know, from one of your favorite um, marketers or whoever, um, you start to notice that um, they use some of the same emails over again because wow. they're just really good messages and not everybody remembers them and sometimes people didn't see them because they do delete yeah. and all the other kind of stuff. Um, yeah, true. All right. Well, we have gone a little bit over time, but it's been well worthwhile. It's been so fun both um, um, listening you talk about this idea of leaving things better than you found them um, and how that really uh, makes a huge difference in our lives and, and lots of things, the way that you impact your family, the way you impact your team, your clients, um, and just the, just the world around you, that just one little simple piece of advice that can last a lifetime. Um, so as we close here, I just want to remind people to, about that because we got into talking about uh, the book process, which is also um, an incredibly important thing 
to be thinking about. Um, but with that last or second point in mind, what's the best way for somebody to get to know you and maybe begin um, exploring the idea of writing a book? Because I'm sure you'd you'd love to help. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. If you go to authorswholead.com, that's probably the best place to connect with me. There's our podcast by the same name, Authors Who Lead, because you can hear from authors like yourself, um, people who have big publishing deals, people who've never written a book in their life, young 14-year-olds who've written books. It's just really interesting to hear behind the scenes and kind of learn from them, learn from people like you about what it's really like to write a book versus what what people say, because I think that's there's a difference sometimes. So yeah, if you go to authorswholead.com, that's probably the best way to connect with me. Okay, awesome. Well, we'll definitely be sure to put that in the show notes and I'll maybe even put a separate link into um, the episode that I did um, on your podcast, because I think oh, that yeah. was actually maybe the first podcast um, on which I was ever a um, guest, which maybe is part of the reason that I'm doing podcasts. I just, I owe everything to you. (laughs) (laughs) That's very generous. I I think I could do it the other way around. I think so many people owe who they are to you. So it's, it's great to be able to serve you in that way. Yeah. Well, let's not uh, have too much of a mutual admiration society. (laughs) Just, uh, just go on about our lives being um, uh, true fans of of each other and those that, uh, that we encounter. So Fair any enough. any final words, any last pieces of advice you'd like to give to the audience thinking about what we've talked about today? Yeah. If, if you're thinking about writing a book, do it. There, there's no better time. Um, you'll never be less busy. I know you think you will. You'll, you'll never have more time. But I think everyone's message is worthy to be heard. And I really hope that everyone does it because it will make a difference in their lives and hopefully the lives of their readers. Absolutely. And I think that is that is great advice to end this because that that is certainly something that I share anytime somebody says, should I write a book? Say yes. <laughs> no hedging. <Absolutely. 